Does everybody have a uh, a sheet? <coughs> I wasn't going to finish chapter 10. I was just sort of going to, I don't know what I was going to do, but uh, I'm going to finish it. And we're going to be chapter 10, 22. I'm not going to spend a lot of time finishing chapter 20, uh, chapter 10, but there are a couple of uh, difficult passages that I want to look at as Jesus explains to the naysayers and the unbelievers that He is who He says He is. And so let's look at 10.22. And, uh, you know, in the last two weeks we've been looking at this setting of the of the uh, sixth sign with the healing of the blind man, and it's been, uh, it's been in context. We just finished it up, 10.21. And Jesus in this, in this context has, has told us about the metaphors of the sheep and the good shepherd and the hireling. We've spent several weeks on that. Uh, we're going to come to chapter 10 now, verse 22, and this is going to be another section. It's a very short section. And just sort of trying to give you an idea of what's going on in Jesus' life. Um, we just had this context of the sixth sign of the healing of the blind man. And, uh, and some time has gone by, perhaps a few months, and now we land, as Keith would say, we parachute into, into December. And uh, we parachute into Feast of Hanukkah. And, we, when, and it's also called the Feast of Lights. Now, the Feast of Hanukkah, it's also called in this verse 22, it's called the Feast of Dedication. Yeah, it's not one of the uh, not one of the feasts that the Jewish males' uh, compulsory attendance had to go to. You know, they had to go to Passover and unleavened bread. They had to go to Pentecost and they had to go to Tabernacles. Uh, each Jewish male every year, uh, but this ceremony was not a mandatory uh, a ceremony, and it's not one of the ceremonies that was established by Moses back in the Pentateuch. It's a fairly new dedication. And for 200 brownie point dollars, what uh, do you know about Hanukkah? This is a feast of dedication. And I hope I spelled that right. I practiced it. That doesn't, H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H, one N. What do we know about Feast of Dedication? This is where Jesus is. He attends this festival. Jesus always tried to associate with the people to identify as their high priest, to identify with the people. So he always attended these feasts and these gatherings of people for an opportunity to minister and to show that he is uh, that he's their Messiah, he's their king, he's going to fulfill all the, the law and the requirements. So he comes, we, we land here in, in John chapter 10, verse 22, in Hanukkah. And uh, tell me what you know about Hanukkah, but without reading the notes. And remember we did Hanukkah when we did Zechariah, and we did Hanukkah in the book of Daniel uh, chapter 11. What do we know about Hanukkah? I think there's two K's. What do we know about Hanukkah? This is going to be a teaching opportunity. Hanukkah, right, is originated in 170 B.C. by Judas Maccabus during the time when, remember, the Greeks were were ruling over the nation of Israel, and there was this evil guy. We talked about him many times. We talked about him, and he is Antiochus. 
Epiphanes, and he is the one who is a forerunner of the Antichrist. He was ruling over the nation of Israel at this time, and he came into Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. He put a swine in the altar, and so he desecrated the, the worship of, Christ, of, of, of God in the temple. And so this uh, a group of uh, uh, John Maccabees and his five children, they came in in zealous rage against this desecration of the temple and they started this process of cleansing this temple and what happened was the menorah have you seen the menorah candle it's got four arms on each side and it's got one in the middle well they just had enough oil to keep the lamps burning for one day but miraculously according to jewish tradition the menorah burned for eight days and so this is the feast of hanukkah feast of lights and the people celebrated by the lighting of candles and the lighting of uh, of lamps. And so it was a time they, to remember the redemptive work of God in their past. And so Jesus is here for this celebration. It's not mandatory, but he's here. So this is the setting of this story. And then uh, what we we'll really want to focus on is uh, just this difficult passage on uh, 34 uh, through... 37. But let me read this first section, and then we'll hop into into uh, sign seven, uh, the the healing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, a story you're all familiar with. Uh, 10:22. Now it was a feast of dedication or Hanukkah in Jerusalem. It's winter. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Uh, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I've told you before, you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. Remember, he's going back a couple of months pr- uh, earlier when he had talked about the sheep and the shepherd and the hirelings. So he's reminded them that I've told you who I am. I've told you why I came. I've told you who my Father is is and I'm doing his work but you didn't believe and remember we said one of the characteristics of a sheep is that a sheep will believe and uh, he says you do not believe verse 26 you don't believe because you're not my sheep and as I said to you my sheep we talked about this in great detail here my voice I know them they follow me and I give them the sheep eternal life that word sheep give them he doesn't say I will give them he says, I give them, that's in the present tense, in the present tense. That means we as sheep to this very second have eternal life within us. And what is eternal life? It's abundant life. It's looking forward to future glories when we're going to be in his presence forever in resurrected bodies. But what did, how did Jesus define eternal life? He says, I give the sheep eternal life. It's already happened. It's happening now. It will continue to happen. What does he say is, I give them eternal life. What is that? Turn over to 17 before I cut Sheila off. Is this what you was going to say? Verse, chapter 17, verse 3. This is the eternal life that's already been given to us as sheep who believe. Not because we believe, but because we're sheep. We believe because we're sheep. And this is eternal life, here it is, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we sheep have been given this precious gift of eternal life. 
and it is present today within us His Spirit, and that is to know God, to know Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this, and we'll continue to talk about this till God takes my breath away. To know Christ is to what? To know God. What does it mean to know Christ? To know God. Tell us from your experience. Tell us what the Scripture says. Tell us how you know you're a believer. How do you know God? How do you know Christ? Tell me about it. Tell me if I'm a, if I'm an unbeliever on the street and I'm a skeptic and I say, how do you know you're one of God's? How do you know God? How do you know Christ? What do you say? Scripture says we've got to have an answer for when people ask us. What are you going to say, Val? How do you know God? How do you know Christ? The hope. Talk about the hope, the work of the Spirit. What are you talking about you know God? How can you know God? How can you know Jesus? Peace through the Word. Life change. What else? If somebody asks you, I'm really being... Because you're going to get asked. You go to Grace Bible. How do you know God? How can you know God? Know God. Was you going to say something, Rusty? Right behind Sally, 517, 2 Corinthians, and 21, and 22, and 25, talks about the gift of reconciliation. And without that gift of reconciliation, you have a hard time looking at the rest of the world through the eyes of Christ, I think, right? And you don't want to. You, if you're not a believer, you have a hard time with Yep. But you can rest and know that vengeance is the Lord. You don't have to fix every problem. You can rest. You can have peace. All part of knowing God. You can talk about it. I mean, be ready to say, well, tell me about God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's always present. He's holy. you got to talk about that. Creation. Why can scientists predict to the very day when the moon's going to go dark and when it's going to be full? Right? Well, I suppose God has set it in, in His, in His universe and it is exact, right? You can just go on and on. You talk about the human eyeball. So, knowing God is critical. We know His Word. We know what it says about Word. And we ought to be able to be a boldness to be able to tell people about who God is. Most people, he's just some abstract thought out there. It's a person. As many as receive him. That's right. That's right. That's right. You've done this before. Yes. Knowing God is eternal life. And it is present and it is, and it is future. 
and it is knowing him. So Jesus said, my sheep I give eternal life, and they shall never perish. We talked about the preservation and the perseverance of saints. That's one of the doctrines of grace. We, we are preserved by God, we are preserved by his grace, and we cannot finally and ultimately be fall, or what, fall away, nor can we be snatched out of our Father's hand. It's all part of knowing God and the confidence we have in who He is and in His person and in His Son. And that's what gives us eternal life. Trust, dependence of Him. And so we understand this. Now he goes on to say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch Him out of my Father's hand. Then he makes the big statement, I and my Father are one. That puts the Jews into an uproar. This has happened two other times. Uh, he, he, they have tried to stone him three times. And their, their problem is that Jesus claims to be God. To the Jewish mind, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a monotheism opposed to all the Baals and the Asteros and all the, and all the religions of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Multiple gods, generally gods of nature, you know, the sun god, the, the, the water gods, all these different gods, multiple gods. God, Israel was unique in that it had one God. Well, the nation of Israel believed literally one God. They didn't understand the concept of one God, three persons. So Jesus Christ, who is the second person in the Trinity, when he claims to be God, it blows their mind cells. And they think that's blasphemy that somebody else would claim to be God other than the God, the Spirit that they've been praying to, the one who gives them the Word. So they don't understand that. So they, they, they try to stone Jesus for the third time. Look at 5.18. We've talked about this. They try to stone Him here. Uh, stone one number one. They try to stone Him 5.18. Uh, we see this. Jesus makes a claim. Uh, when he says in 5.17, Jesus says, My Father has been working until now, and I am working. He's making himself equal with God. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Not because he broke the Sabbath, but he said he was with the Father, and he was making himself equal with God. They thought that was blasphemy. Remember we talked about this in 8.59. Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they understood that, hey, he's, not, he's just not even 50 years old, and he claims to be to know Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I'm the self-existent. I'm the eternal, self-sufficient God. I am that I am, and I am God. And then when they heard that, verse 59, 8, chapter 8, they took up stones to throw at him. And what were they basing that upon? They knew the law, but they misunderstood the law, and they were basing that on Leviticus Twenty-four sixteen. You don't have to look there, but let me read it to you. Twenty-four sixteen. Leviticus. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the stranger as well as he who is born in the land. But he who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Good religious people, trusting in the externals of the law, they think that Jesus is blaspheming by claiming to be God. Yes, ma'am. They were looking for a political leader. Pardon me? Why were they so worried? I mean, they must have been looking. What were they looking for? They were looking for political leader, weren't they? 
Why were they blind? They were blinded because of disobedience and hardness of heart. And God blinded them so that they could not see and they could not hear. Part of what Terry talked about, part of the hardening of Israel is so that we Gentiles can be grafted into the family of God. And once all of the church is grafted in, then he's going to go back. And then he's going to fulfill the promises to the nation of Israel. And he's going to unblind their eyes and unstop their ears. And he's going to pour out this fountain we talked about in Zechariah 13. And there's going to be a mass revival. And the Jews are going to look upon him whom they've pierced. And they're going to go, he was the Messiah. That's going to happen. That is yet future. We've talked about that. Maybe to some ad nauseum in the minor prophets. But he will eventually be recognized by the nation of Israel. But he calls this claim, and he says, I am the father of one. They try to stone him again. And why don't they succeed in stoning Jesus? Very easy answer. It's not his time. The plan is he's going to be cursed. He's going to hang on that tree. And he's going to be, he's going to take on the sins of his people, and he's going to die for them on the, and shed his blood all foreshadowed, all prophesied in the Scripture. So stoning is not how he's going to go. He's going to die as a criminal on a tree. That was also reprehensible to the Jews, that, that's, that, that a sinner would die on a cross. And uh, we can, we'll talk about that when we get into John chapter 19 and 20 and his crucifixion. Now what he says here is pretty difficult. Look at verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, Many good works have I shown to you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The boldness, this is, this is amazing. The Jews said, For good works we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, claim to be God. You say you're in the Father of one. You're saying you're doing the works of the Father. You're saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're saying before Abraham was, I am. That's our problem with you. And Jesus' answer, uh, I must say it's a very unexpected answer. And, uh, and it's a very confusing answer. And so that's why I really wanted to look at this. Because if you read this, there's a book, The Hard Sayings of Christ, that forget who wrote it. And uh, this is one of the chapters in the book. This is a difficult and I wish Terry was here to explain it to you better, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? That blows my mind. I have difficult with that. But what he's doing, he's going to Psalm 82. So turn to 82 Psalms. Psalm 82 is a difficult psalm. But the key to knowing this, what this psalm means is to understanding what little g gods means. So let's turn to Psalm 82, 82. Psalm 82. And so one of the things we learn from this psalm, uh, and one we learned from Jesus' teaching, when he teaches this, he, he lays three principles. First of all, he says, Scripture 
is accurate and it is authoritative, authoritative, and help me with that word, buh, 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 buh. How about a word that I can, hey, spell authoritative. Thank you, sister. A-U-T-O-R-A-T-H-O-R. Authoritative, and it cannot be broken. So he takes one little seemingly insignificant psalm written by Asaph, which is one of the singers within the congregation of Israel. He takes one little psalm and he says, Scripture is accurate, it's authoritative, and it cannot be broken. And Jesus is coming to fulfill all Scripture. So all Scripture is important, even something relatively insignificant. And he takes this phrase, you said you were God. So let me look at Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Little g. This little g gods is what we need to understand. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim. And we understand in context, in the beginning, God. Elohim, plural for the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is usually the context for Elohim. But in this phrase... You are gods. It can also be used of a of a uh, of angels. In some texts, it is used of angels. Uh, sometimes it is used of prophets. But in this case, it is used of human judges. So when he says, and this is a this is a a plea for justice psalm. God stands in the congregation. He judges among the gods, the earthly judges. Judges who had been given the, the declarative work is to administer justice of the law. So they're human judges like we have judges. And so he's, his, this psalm is against human judges who have this divine prerogative to teach the truth and be just, and they're not doing it. So God the Father stands in the congregation. He judges among the Elohim, the earthly judges, earthly judges put earthly up here so we'll know what we're talking about. He's the ultimate judge, but he has judges who accomplish his purpose. And these judges are being impartial. They're not defending the poor and the fatherless. They are not defending the poor and the needy. But they don't walk. They don't understand. They walk in darkness. And they're causing instability within my government. That's what they're doing. And look what he says. I said, you are gods. This is the verse that Jesus uses, I said you were God. So God the Father says, human judges, you act like you're immortal, but you are just like ordinary men. That's what it says. And it says, you may, you, it says, it says, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. The explanation is, is, uh, I love this explanation. It says, uh, uh, judges, people may call you Lord, but you are immortal as anybody else. So Jesus' Father is saying, you've got a role. You're not performing your role. You think you are above the standard of the law because you are a, 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 a rightly divider of the law, but you are accountable to my people whom I have given you the authority over. So Je- that's the context of this. Difficult, huh? So Jesus says, I said you were God. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm just looking at my uh, Bible. Uh-huh. It says, I said you are God. 
What version do you have? See, that makes it even more difficult because we got different standards, we got different translations. Mine is a little G. Who else has got a little G? Most of you got little G's. Uh, and, and then my, and 82, it, it refers to them as rulers. Yeah. So, but, so it just confused me a little bit yep. because of that. Um, I got my version standard, and it's right next to you, and it's got little G's. Well, this is John MacArthur's. <laughs> and these, and the stuff that I'm fixing to tell you comes from John MacArthur. Well, I'm not a I'm not a uh, a uh, linguistic scholar. So, uh, but everyone that I've ever read, the commentators I read, it's a little g, and it means earthly judges. The point of this is Jesus is telling the people. The point that he's making is one, God Himself, as I have in my notes refers to human judges, doesn't refer to the true God, false gods, or angels. The point is this, if God, if God uses the word little g, God, to refer to others rather than God himself, why should the Jews object to my statement that I am the Son of God? That doesn't clarify it for me, but this is what clarifies it for me. The second part of this, he says, if he called them gods, if God the Father calls them little gods, Elohim, to whom the word of God came. So what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting, he contrasts the human judges. And what does it say to the human judges? The word of God came to them. The word of God came to them. And then they were in a place of authority that they were to proclaim that word and to administer justice so Jesus is saying, is, is the explanation that clears it up for me. He said, if, if God uses human judgments, human judge, human representatives, and the word comes to them and the word cannot be spoken, do you say of him? So he contrasts himself. He contrasts himself. And what does he say? He doesn't say the word of God came to him. He is the word of God. And so there is a big contrast between the human judges, the word comes to them, and they prophesy or they tell it forth and they they use it to judge justice compared to Jesus. He is the word of God and he is different from the human judges. He is sent and he is set apart from the Father. So that's the difference and that's what helps me understand it. There's a difference. One is the Word of God comes to, but do you say of Him to me, Jesus, to whom the Father set apart and sent to the world? So you're accusing me of blasphemy when I am the Word of God who was sent and sanctified and came from the Father. Does that help you, or does that make you more murky than before? Yes, Yes. Absolutely. They're under his authority, doing his word. Absolutely. Val has the wonderful illustrations, sheriff and his deputies. 
human judges proclaiming God's word, fulfilling the function, whereas Jesus Christ is the word of God. He's not the word from God. He's not the word of God that came to them. He is the word of God. He has been sent. He has been sanctified. And he is from the Father. So do you understand what he's telling the people? You are calling me, you are saying I'm a blasphemer because, but I am the Word, I am sin, I am sanctified, and I am from the Father. And I have so much more authority than human judges have. And so I think that helps clear it up for me. Does it help you? I think it's, it, it was unexpected that Jesus would take its seemingly insignificant Word and, and show the absolute accuracy and unbrokenness and power of Scripture. Jesus came to fulfill the very law to the very dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. Proving He is who He says He is. And then He goes on to say, If you don't believe the works of my Father, you don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. So I hope that helps you understand that. Uh, it's a difficult, difficult phrasing, and that's the reason I, and I decided to teach on it because it confused me, and I know other people it's confused. I've had this conversation with people. Does that help you at all? I hope it does. And why is it important? It's important because Jesus used it as a evidence that he is who he says he is. And so I think that's important. Now we're going to transition. We're done with the Feast of Tabernacle, of, of uh, Hanukkah. And then what Jesus is going to do, starting in 10 verse 40, he is going to retreat. And he is going to start being in seclusion. Now it's December, so we understand that he's going to be in seclusion December until he comes to Passover in April. So for four or five months, minimum, exactly, he's going to be in seclusion. And so after he's not believed, after he is, they, they, they seek to stone him, Jesus is going to retreat back to where he started from. Verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John baptized at first. Remember when we started this, this book? And he stayed there. And many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the signs that John spoke about this man are true. Many believe. So what is he doing in his retreat as he goes into seclusion before his time? He goes and he trains and he prepares his disciples. And so Jesus shows us this pattern of teaching and training disciples and followers of his because he knows his time is ready. He knows he has four months according to this, uh, according to this chronolog- uh, chronological order of the book. So he's going to go into seclusion. And then from the rest of the book, 11 and 12 are going to be transition chapters and are going to be preparatory for, for, for because 13 to the rest of the book is going to be him with his people, those whom he loves, and he is not no longer going to be in his Judean ministry. He's no longer going to be in, in a conflict with those who don't believe him. But the rest of this book is going to be with his people as he prepares his disciples, as he prepares us, as he teaches about the Holy Spirit. So that's where we are in transition. And one of the things that happen in transition is chapter 11. Everybody got this? 
Chapter 11, he's in seclusion. He's been there for a few months. The disciples have, have benefited from his personal attention to them. And then chapter 11 happens. And we start chapter 11, and chapter 11 is the seventh sign before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The seventh sign is a climactic sign. Uh, MacArthur says it's the most dramatic sign. It's the capstone of Jesus' public ministry. And so we see this seventh sign, and the seventh sign is Lazarus' resurrection. And in this seventh sign, we're going to talk about next time we're here, we're going to talk about the fifth I am, and we'll talk about this the next time I am resurrection. And we'll talk about that next week. But now we're going to look at the seventh sign. Everybody know where we are? We're in this transition period. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, and this is going to be the seventh sign. So there's always purposes and signs. These purposes are very, very evident. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Let's read this quickly. Somebody read 1 through 16, Austin. Somebody read 17 through 27, Miss Sheila. If my wife will read 28 through 37. And then, Gene, if you'll go, your glasses are good, you can see. 38 through 44. We're going to read this real quickly and be looking for why Jesus did this seventh climatic capstone ending. Most important sign, and we're going to be looking at this, so feel free. Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask, 
Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the, in the house and selling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loves him. But some of them said, Could not he have he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that you, they, they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Everybody's familiar with this story. There's some things in here that are fascinating. I want to look at them here in a second. But purpose, the purpose of this, it says it in several verses, the purpose of this sign is for God's glory. Everything God does is for His own glory. This dovetails with Jesus as He prays to His Father. He says to His Father in 17, He says 17 once, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. And it's all about the glory of the Godhead as they are in unity of spirit and mind and essence. It's for God's glory. He allowed Lazarus to die because he had a purpose in it. And in verse 4 it says, The sickness is not into death but for the glory of God. He knew Lazarus had died and he knew he was going to die and he allowed him to die so that he may glorify himself and he may glorify his Father. That's the purpose of of this sign is for His glory. Everybody understand that? We see that in verse 4. We see that in verse 11. He tells His disciples, I'm glad we weren't there. Our friend Lazarus is asleep, and he's asleep that I may go wake him up, that I may raise him from the dead, and it's going to be for my glory. And then we see that in verse 40. 
He tells the people that are surrounding, Did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And we're going to talk about the glory of God in His resurrection. Talk about that hope that Dwayne talked about in a minute next, next time we're together. But the purpose of this sign is for God's glory. Who else can raise another man from the dead? So Jesus, as God says, Lazarus, arise, and he arose. I like what preachers say sometimes. He had to say Lazarus. If he wouldn't have said Lazarus, everybody else would have come up. Now that's, that's, that's cute, but uh, I don't know. But anyway, for God's glory. So he does this sign as it culminates his ministry. The climax of the ministry is he says he's, he claims to be God. He proves it. He gives life to a dead man. And we're going to talk about all the ramifications next time about how he gives us life. And all that type of thing. We'll do that next time we're together. For God's glory. Everybody get that one? Yes. Yes. That's the next one. The next one is for belief in His people. To strengthen the belief. So point one is that it's for His glory. Point two, it's for His people his people would believe and be strengthened in belief. We find that in the verse that Sally pointed out. He did it that you may believe. That's one of the whole points of this book. These things are written that you may believe and that believing you may have life in the Son of God. So we see that in verse 15. It's for His glory that we may believe. Look at verse 25. 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Verse 26, he who lives and believes shall never die. Do you believe this? And so that's one of the primary focuses of this whole book, is that that men will believe, that men will believe. We see another verse, and we see that in verse 27. She said, Mary confesses, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the Word. Verse 40, did not I say if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then verse 42, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. I'm doing this in public for people to hear that they may believe. So, point two is for belief in His people. And then always, always, as Jesus is going to come out of seclusion, His time is near, the very day in which He said He would die and the Passover lambs are slaughtered. And so it's always to point to the cross. And so this resurrection is going to foreshadow His resurrection, the first fruits. He's going to be the first one to die and never to, to raise from the dead and never die again. It points to the cross. We see that. Martha says, I know I will rise again in the resurrection of the dead. She was pointing to a specific day. Jesus is emphasizing the personage. Yes, there is going to be a resurrection, but I am myself the resurrection. We'll talk about that next time. But he points to the cross, and he's going to foreshadow this wonderful text. Look at John 12. This rising of the dead, Lazarus, is going to foreshadow his own resurrection. And this is going to fulfill. Look at verse 12, 24. Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat 
falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces grain. So this is going to be a picture of Christ, His resurrection, the fruits of the resurrection, the salvation of His people. We'll talk about that in great detail. But it's predictive and it is foreshadowing. And we see the purpose of this sign. Now, we learned some things. I'm just going to call this details, and I've got good time here. we got some details that I love that are very, very helpful. First detail I see is that Jesus loves. He loves Martha, and He loves Mary, and He loves Lazarus. And in verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. How do we know that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus? John doesn't tell us anything about these three. It assumes, because it's the last gospel, that we already understand the story. I love this story. And he loves them. And the the thing that's so peculiar about Jesus is he loves them and he deals with each one of their personality types. And I'm glad that he does that. And he treats us all individually and he's compassionate and he's patient with us because some of us are like Mary and some of us are like Mary, Martha. He loves them. Let's look at this story. Do anybody remember the story of personality types and how Jesus deals with them? The story is in Luke 10, 38, 40. Do you remember the story? And do you resemble Mary or do you resemble Martha? Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we see that they have distinctive personality types. And Jesus skillfully deals with them with love. And this is something that we have to learn, that we're all different. Uh, And it's something I'm still learning. Now it happened as they went out to enter into a certain village, 1038, a certain woman named Martha welcomed into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Won't you tell her to help me? Jesus said, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but you need to remember this one thing. Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. Are you Mary or are you Martha? Are you Mary? Are you Martha? You're a worry wart. You're a doer and you got to be doing something. You never stop and you got to be serving and you don't take the time to spend time with your first love, Jesus. Lots of people like that. It's almost like a works-based salvation. I mean, in a, in a, maybe that's a stretch, but you know, you think you have to do something. Busy, 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 busy. This is a great church. We're to serve in this church. But there's got to be times when you're focused upon not the works in this church, but is in your personal walk with God Himself. You cannot serve Him faithfully and be up here every minute of every day without personal time with Him. Martha, Martha, you worry about many things. You're stressed. You're anxious. Your priorities are wrong. 
Is there any? Yes. And what is that, Russell? Mary has chosen the right thing. He did not do what Martha wanted him to do and rebuke Mary because Mary wasn't helping her. He said, Mary has the priorities right. Mary knows that I'm the focal point here and she is doing the best thing. And so, and so we don't need to be like the church of Ephesus, busy, 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 but you have left your first love. Right? Learn this, but Jesus was... Com- Martha, Martha. Can you hear the tenderness in that? <clears throat> he didn't say... <laughs> he didn't respond like I've responded in time past to my dear wife. Although God is working in me and it's getting better. Would you say, yes, it's getting better. Thank you. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> that is what we need to understand. We're all different. We have different personality types. Some of us are like this. Very few of us are like Mary. Right? So Jesus deals with Mary and Martha. He loves them. It says He loves them. And we see that. It's also, uh, we see that in, uh, in Matthew 26. If you'll go to this, Matthew 26. We see... Uh, uh, Boy, and help us, God help us not to respond like this. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were agitated. And we're going to use the same word in a minute when we talk about Jesus' response to the weepers. At the funeral parlor. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. Uh, some of the versions, some of the uh, books say when his disciples, John's, uh, one of the, I think it's John says, Judas Iscariot is the disciple who's, comp- is the one who's indignant because he's a thief. He's been stealing from the till the whole time and he's not one of God's. But it says when his disciples, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much And given to the poor, Jesus was aware of it. He says, why do you trouble this woman? She's done a good work for me. You have the poor always with you, but but me you don't have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. As assuredly I say unto you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be a memorial to her. So we see the response, the loving response. And we see the negative response. I'm busy in this indignant response. How dare you waste this money on Jesus? And instead, you could have you could have cared for the poor people. And we know from John that Judas Iscariot says it, and he has no thought for anybody but himself. And so we see different responses. We see Jesus dealing with people in love. So we see that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Second thing I think we see, and you feel free to add if you see something that I don't see. I'm quite sure you do. Jesus waited to respond. So chronologically, 
he dies. They go warn him that he's about to die. Can you come? Can you come heal our brother? So uh, logically, you think they tell him uh, a day passes. Maybe he dies. Maybe he, then he says he, he, he stays two more days, takes him a day to get there. He's busy doing the work of the Father, but he waits purposefully. And he waits so that there's going to be no possible way for the naysayer to say, oh, you just resuscitated him. He wasn't really dead. It's four days and he's already decomposing. He's dead. And he stinks. The Jews didn't. Uh, embalm like the Egyptians did. The Jews, what they would do is they'd take a linen cloth and they would, they would layer, they would, within the layers of each wrap, it was a loose wrap, and they would layer it with spices, and these spices were used to control the stench. They didn't embalm like Egyptians did. So he's been lying in there for four days, so Jesus waits for his glory, for his timing, just to show that he's really dead. So we see that detail. Everybody understand that one? Pretty easy. I love some of these details and these signs. The third one I see, Jesus is preparing his disciples. Notice what Thomas says. They've had trouble. He's been, they tried to stone him three times. He's hated. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees are after him. Uh, we're going to get into more in chapter 12. Look at Thomas says, who's called the twin, his fellows, let us go also that we may die with him. <coughs> that's not just pessimistic, uh, negative pessimism, that's reality. And they knew that Jesus was stirring up a stink within leaders of his claims to be God. So Jesus purposely waits. And so what did he, he is preparing his disciples because five months later, the disciples are going to have to make choices whether to run or to stay with Jesus. And what do they do? They scatter, every one of them. And Peter, who is such bravery and bravado, says, Everybody may, may leave you, but not me. And he denies him three times. But Jesus is preparing his disciples. And then... He's preparing him for his death and his leaving, and they're going to be alone. And then we're going to get into how he prepares them when his spirit comes. His spirit gives them boldness and courage. And we'll look at the diff between the two after the spirit comes upon them. So we see he's preparing the disciples. Look at Matthew 10. I don't want to read all this, but uh, I ought to. So therefore I will. Matthew 10 He's preparing his disciples. He sent them out. And this is also going to be applicable to these disciples as he's preparing them for the trials and his trouble, his death, burial, and resurrection. And something we need to read, and, and, and this needs to prepare us because these days are coming. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Beware of men. They'll deliver you to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And we know that happened to every one of the disciples. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you should speak or what you should say. But it will be given you in that hour what you should speak when the Spirit of the Father we speak in you. And brother will be delivered, brother to death, and father to children, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. 
Verse 24, disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for disciple that you be like your teacher. And so he teaches and teaches and teaches. Don't, if whoever confess, verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father who is in heaven. And we're talking about taking up the cross and following him. This going to confrontation city in Judea is preparatory for his disciples. They fail miserably, but he has mercy on them and he restores them. I love this one. The Jews use professional mourners. Did you know this? It was a tradition within Jewelry that even poor people, according to MacArthur, had to hire two flute players and a professional wailing woman at all the funeral services. So the more money you had, the more mourners you had that would these loud laments of sorrow and sadness. And so we see these mourners throughout this whole text and tells us that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were well-to-do. They had money, and they hired these professional mourners. And so you see these professional mourners. Can you just see them? Have you, have you ever seen a fiddler on a roof? And you know the professional mourning? Oh, it's, just, it's, it's on and on. It's, it's hilarious. But they're professional mourners. And you see these professional mourners uh, in various places. Uh, 19, you see these mourners. Uh, you say many of the Jews who had joined the women, the women are the mourners around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Verse 31, you see these mourners. Uh, then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw Mary rise up and went out, followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. So we're going to go there too. And we're going to mourn and weep with Martha and Mary. And then 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. So these are the professional mourners. And Jesus has a word for these people. And the word is point five. Jesus, I remember being a smart aleck and I was quoting Bible verses and my first one was Jesus wept. Shortest verse in Scripture. But Jesus weeps But what I really want to focus on, he groans in his spirit. And we see that in verse 33 and 38. When he's brought to the tomb, Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who came with her, he groaned in the spirit and he's troubled. Verse 33. And then in verse 38, Jesus, again groaning to himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. The word groan is a word in the Greek that means he's agitated and he's angry. It's not a sympathy with the mourners. It's not a sympathy with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He is agitated. The word groan is a, is a, is a, I think it means anger, outrage, and agitation. Okay. Why is Jesus agitated, enraged, and angry at this funeral, at this death scene? And I'll tell you. 
Why is he angry? Why is he agitated? When it says Jesus weeps, it's not a loud outburst of emotion like these professional mourners. It's a silent tears. And he's weeping for many reasons. And I have them here in the text. Why is he agitated and angry at what goes on here? Because of their unbelief is one. Jesus was agitated, point five, under D of your notes, because of excessive sorrow. Scripture tells us we're to mourn, but not to mourn like those who have no hope. We're to understand that our believing children, moms and dads, whomever it is, are in glory. They are in the presence of God. They are in Abraham's bosom awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. So when my mom and dad pass, I'm to mourn because I will miss them, but I'm not to mourn because I have great hope that they are in God's presence and they are perfectly content and they're not demented and they're not crippled anymore. And so when Carolyn, our dear sister, whom we talked about this, she told me to talk about it. When she passes, she said, don't weep for me. I'm in God's presence. Okay? And so it is, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So Jesus was agitated because those he loved were excessively sorrowful, and that sorrow expressed unbelief expressed distrust. It expressed they didn't know who He was, that I am resurrection. And so that's why He's agitated and angry with the people. He's agitated at Martha. Look at verse uh, 24. Martha says, I know that there's going to be a time when there's a resurrection. She had an intellectual understanding of a certain time, <clears throat> but she failed to comprehend who He was in His personage, that He is the resurrection and He is life. So He was angry and agitated by that. He was agitated by Mary's faithless rebuke. Look at verse 32. Mary came where Jesus was and saw Him. She fell on His feet saying, Lord, if You'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She didn't go on to, to uh, enumerate like uh, Martha did. Martha said that you would have died, but then she said, if you, if, but I know that you ask of God, He's going to give you. But Martha never said that. She just, she's frustrated. She's angry. There may be some bitterness sinking in, which is ironic because she's the one at, at the presence of God. She's the one that's learning at Jesus' feet, who's prioritizing Jesus. So she ought to know better, right? But she says... If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There's a, there's a sense of bitterness there. And there's not a hope that Martha displayed, which is ironic and I think caused some agitation to Jesus. The general unbelief, verse 40, Did not I say to you that you would believe you would see the glory of God? And that's why he publicly and audibly asks God and tells God and thanks God in advance before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so we understand that is an important detail. He groaned in his spirit, and that's what he's teaching. Belief pointing to the cross for God's glory. And then the last thing we see is that Jesus publicly thanks the Father. We see that in verse 41 and 2. I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. And we're going to talk about... uh, 
uh, this this theological term co-inherence. We're going to talk about mutual indwelling. I purposely left that out today, but we're going to talk about that in John 14. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And we're going to talk about uh, that they may be one as we are one. I in the Father, the Father in me, and them in me. And we'll talk about all of that later, but that's another point of the resurrection. Comments, questions? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We'll talk about the resurrection of Lazarus, what it was and what it wasn't. And we'll talk about this fifth I am as we finish up 11. Comments, questions? Yes, sir. How many people? He just spoke the word. Yeah. Well, that that was um, uh, I surely she had heard of that. Yeah, that's another reason he's agitated. He had demonstrated his ability to raise men from the dead. He'd done that in I think two other occasions in the in the, in the New Testament. Good question. How many were there? I have no idea. But they should have known. Thank you for coming. And we will finish this next time. Comments or questions? And